You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Everyone and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 152. This week, I'd like to thank Peter for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where he now gets access to special Patreon-only episodes. Many of you have probably noticed that the podcast has joined the Recorded History Podcast Network. This should not change the podcast too much, except for in one area, advertisements. Starting soon, the weekly episodes will be accompanied by ads. My hope is that this will open up some exciting opportunities in the future. As part of this shift, I will also be adding a new benefit to Patreon subscribers of $1 a month or more ad-free episodes. Let me know if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, or concerns about this change. This week, we jump to the Italian front. We last visited the Italian front with the Austro-German attack named the Battle of Caporetto. In this attack, the combined forces of Germany and Austria-Hungary had broken, at least temporarily, the stalemate that had kept the Italian and Austrian troops locked on the Isonzo and on the Asiago Plateau since the start of the war. The Italians had attacked in these areas 11 times, throwing themselves against the Austrian positions on the Carso, at Gorizia, at villages like Podgora, and around the summits of mountains like Mount Sabatino and San Michele. After trying for two years to pry the Austrians from these positions, the Italians were thrown back in only a few days, with all of their gains wiped away in the defeat at Caporetto. The new line would settle along the river Piav, if only because the Austrians and Germans could not push any further, being already a hundred kilometers from where they had started. This move south greatly reduced the length of the front line by 170 kilometers, a godsend for the Austrians who were desperately short of men. There were a few last attempts by General Borivik and the Austrians to cross the river, but with most of the German assistants moved elsewhere, they made little headway and the fighting stopped until the spring of 1918. That is where our story begins today. Over the next three episodes, we will discuss the situation at the beginning of 1918, then look at the last two attacks on the Italian front, one from the Austrians and one from the Italians. 
Then in episode three, we will discuss the end of the war in Italy and look at the post-war situation in Austria and Italy. With the defeat at Caporetto, the Italians finally found a really good excuse to get help from their allies in Western Europe, help that they had been asking for since 1915. The British and French became very concerned that if the collapse of the Italian army was not arrested in some way, they would drop out of the war entirely, removing almost all pressure from Austria-Hungary with Russia already on its way out of the war by the end of 1917. Even though the Western Front generals in both the French and British armies had strongly resisted any attempt to move men or guns to the Italian front, they were finally convinced that it was necessary. This help would begin to arrive at the end of 1917, and it would be in the form of 130,000 French and 110,000 British troops. There would also be huge quantities of artillery, ammunition, heavy gun batteries, and other supplies that would be of great assistance to the Italians. Just from an artillery perspective, this would allow them to fire more artillery shells in 1918 than they did in the rest of the war combined. One of the British soldiers, upon arriving in Italy, would say that, quote, it was such a gorgeous rest after Flanders. This assistance from the Allies came at a price, though, and General Foch would soon begin hounding Diaz to launch an attack. Diaz was busy getting his army put back together again, and would resist calls for attacks during the first half of 1918. This was a relatively easy task in early 1918, but by the time of the German attacks in the spring, Diaz had to be far more adamant that his army was simply not ready to attack. Diaz was from southern Italy, and was of Spanish ancestry. Before the war, his military experience was first in the artillery, and then he had served 16 years as a staff officer in Rome. Diaz was almost the exact opposite of Cadorna, being very cautious and a detailed planner. He was also the opposite in another way, a very important way. He was willing to work closely with the politicians in Rome. He would support the creation of a war committee, and he would meet with politicians often to discuss the situation at the front, something that Cadorna had never done. While the help that was sent to them was appreciated, the Italians also had to do something about their own army. Caporetto had completely disorganized many units in the Italian army, and it took months to round up all of the scattered soldiers and to get them reorganized and into their units. Rounding up stragglers could make up for some of the manpower shortfall, and the Italian leaders found as many men as they could in training depots or recovering from wounds as soon as possible, but it would not be enough. The class of 1899 would be called up before the end of 1917, which meant that the only available pool of reserves would be the class of 1900, which would not be called up until 1918, but this only totaled 260,000 men, which was far less than what was required. While Diaz was scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of warm bodies, he was also doing everything he could to make the army more efficient. He broke up his forces into smaller, more efficient units. He improved the relationship between the infantry and artillery, and he trained up more assault troops, the Arditi, bringing them up to 21 full-strength battalions for 1918. Diaz would also make other administrative and structural changes to the Italian army. He would push powers down through the chain of command, which Cadorna had gathered to him at the top. He would find competent officers and empower them to get the job done. He would also name General Badoglio as his chief of staff. Badoglio would prove to be a good choice. He was a capable leader and well-organized, and this would be the beginning of Badoglio's story, and he would be a critical figure in the interwar period for the Italian military. Diaz also set about making changes to the conditions at the front. 
Italian soldiers had always had it hard while on the front line, and Diaz took some steps to try and make their time at the front easier. Rations were increased not just in size, but in variety. Pay was increased. Annual leave was increased from 15 to 25 days. Older soldiers were given more leave, and leave was more consistent. These were all good changes that improved morale, but just as impactful was the issuing of a free life insurance policy for all soldiers, with death benefits to be paid to their families should they be killed. Along with these concrete efforts to improve morale, there was a concerted propaganda campaign designed to remind the soldiers why they were fighting. This propaganda campaign was not just limited to the soldiers at the front, and would also be used back at home. These efforts went far beyond just spreading information, though. The situation back home demanded more. Much like other countries, the war was putting tremendous strain on the Italian society. Crippling inflation, few shortages, millions of men gone up to the front year after year. All of this caused increasingly large problems for the Italian authorities. There were many groups within Italian society that were pushing and pulling against each other. On one side were the interventionists, some monarchists, some anarchists, and some fascists. On the other side were the socialists. During the war, the socialists had reasonably large followings throughout Italy, and their push for peace found many receptive ears early in the war. However, by October 1917, the anti-socialists in Italy went on the offensive. This led to the imprisonment of many socialists. In the government, there there were many elements that called for a stronger official crackdown on the socialist elements in society, especially as the situation in Russia continued towards another revolution. These types of crackdowns and general segmenting of the population would play a role in shaping post-war Italy. One interesting bit of information about the Italian government during the war was that unlike almost every other government, they refused to send food parcels and other supplies to their prisoners of war. They were concerned that if they did this, then the soldiers at the front would desert en masse, preferring the safety of the POW camps behind the lines instead of life at the front. The general feeling was that POWs as a whole were worthless, cowardly defectors, and they should be punished, not given food. As a result of these policies, more than 100,000 of the 600,000 Italian prisoners would die in captivity during the war, a death rate almost nine times greater than for Austro-Hungarian prisoners in Italy. I mention this not because it plays into some larger narrative, but mostly just because I found it interesting. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. 
enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. We now turn to the Austrian side of the line. 1917 had been the empire's most successful year of the war so far, and it was the most successful by quite a margin. The Italians had been defeated at Caporetto, and the Austrian army was now deep in Italy. On the eastern front, the Russians had collapsed, and in just a few months they would be out of the war. Perhaps most importantly, 1917 had been the year where the Austrians had suffered the least number of casualties. However, even with all of the good things that were happening, there were still many massive problems for the Austrians to overcome. Since the beginning of the war, of the 8.4 million men put under arms, 4 million had become casualties, 780,000 of those were dead, and there were 1.6 million prisoners. While 1917 had been the lightest year for casualties, it had still cost them 1.5 million men, either killed, wounded, or captured. It was by this point impossible to get divisions up to full strength. Throughout 1918, there would only be about 100,000 replacements available per month, which may seem like a lot, but was only about a third of what was needed for the Austrians every single month for the first three years of the war. Because of this manpower shortfall, most units were under strength. There were some efforts to reform the army to be closer to some of the other forces around Europe. This would have increased unit firepower and reduced the army's reliance on headcount. However, unlike the other armies, the Austrians simply did not have the industrial output to make this happen quickly, if at all. The industrial shortfalls would only get worse as their economy collapsed along with that of the Germans, who had supported the Austrians for most of the war. Artillery shell production would only be half of what it had been in 1917, and the production of infantry rifles would fall by 80%. It was also proving more and more difficult to properly feed the soldiers, with rations cut many times over the course of the year, simply because there was no food available to send to the front. While the army was being assaulted by all of these problems, morale at the front was actually pretty good, all things considered. This remained true even as the situation on the home front continued to spiral towards open revolt and revolution. However, not every unit was immune to discipline problems, and this caused the creation of seven divisions to act as a security force. These divisions, by necessity, were made up of frontline troops who had proven themselves reliable, which just spread the army at the front even thinner than before. In the instances where troops did get out of line, these security forces were generally able to bring them back into line without much bloodshed. However, even the most loyal troops were affected by food shortages. No soldier likes to be hungry. The morale problems that did start to crop up were only made worse when the government in Vienna made the decision to start sending troops that were arriving from Russian prisoner of war camps onto the Italian front. These soldiers were often sent back into training camps without any leave, and sometimes without receiving their back pay. If you were to construct a scenario to destroy morale, it's hard to find a more perfect storm than... than sending returning POWs to the front without leave, without back pay, and without enough food to feed them. 
These troops would cause havoc behind the front during the summer of 1918, far more so than the troops that had been on the Italian front for years. While the loyalty of the troops at the front was somewhat steady, it did not prevent the Allies from trying to cripple it. A central inter-allied propaganda commission was set up and it prepared a tremendous amount of propaganda to distribute to Austro-Hungarian troops. 60 million copies of various pieces of propaganda were created. Some of them had the names of deserting officers on them, like messages like, The Italians and Yugoslavs are in complete agreement, and the Italians receive us and accept us as allies and brothers. Everyone who comes here is sorry that he did not come before, for here hunger, misery, fear, and slavery are unknown. You will learn how absurd this claim was when we get to episode 3 of this series. There are few things the Italians cared less about than the Yugoslavs. Oddly enough, the effect of these messages was felt far stronger in Vienna than at the front. Politicians and military leaders were terrified that the army might listen to this propaganda, causing a possible disintegration of the army. But this did not happen, at least until the very end. One piece of information that bolstered the Austro-Hungarian defenders, especially the Slavs from the southern areas of the empire, was a leak from the Bolsheviks. After the Bolsheviks came to power, they leaked all kinds of information about the various agreements that the Russians and the Entente had agreed to. This included the Treaty of London between Italy and the other countries. This agreement had promised the Italians Trento and Trieste, as was expected, but also, and far more critically, areas of the eastern Adriatic. The huge majority of the population in this area was Slavic, and they did not want to trade in their Austrian masters for Italian ones. In fact, they were pretty well set on creating an independent Yugoslavia after the war, and in these aspirations they were supported by, at the very least, the Americans, and the British and French mostly didn't care. But it was nice to make the Americans happy. Pressure would begin to mount on the Italians from all of the other countries in their alliance, and by mid-August 1918 they would officially state that they supported a free and united Yugoslav state, a declaration which, if they had made it earlier in the war, could have won many Austro-Hungarian soldiers to their side. But as I mentioned earlier, the Italians could not have cared less about the Yugoslav cause, and they would do everything in their power to sabotage it after the war. One area that we have not discussed is the area of Italy that was now controlled by the Austrians. When the Austrians occupied the areas of Italy after Caporetto, they would prove to be ill-prepared to handle the administration of these new territories. When the troops moved through, they plundered and pillaged the countryside, and there was widespread reports of violence against civilians, including murder and rape. Then, after the first wave of soldiers came through, the requisition started, of just about anything that could be eaten. This was then followed by further rounds of requisitions that would take far more than just food. One list of items included 95,000 sheets, 65,000 shirts, 39,000 items of underwear, 47,000 towels, 56,000 pillow slips. This list may seem like an odd set of things to take for an army. Pillow slips? But it starts to make more sense when you consider that by this point in the war, the Austrian military was desperately short of textiles. Soldiers were being sent to the front with paper underwear. In those kinds of situations, a pillowcase starts looking mighty appealing. Along with taking so many physical goods, the Austrians also locked down the territory, with civilians not allowed to move around between districts without a permit. 
This harsh exploitation campaign would result in the death of around 10,000 civilians during the last year of the war. Once again, the Italians refused to help those behind Austrian lines. They refused to both send humanitarian supplies or to let civilians trapped behind the front get out of the occupying territories. The belief at army headquarters and in Rome was that these civilians were more useful where they were, causing issues for the Austrian armies and maintaining a strong Italian claim to the territory. The harsh occupation of the area did help to remove any possibility of the northeastern Italian territories falling under the Austro-Hungarian Empire after the war. By the time it was over, everybody in the area hated the Austrians. It would be most of the year before they were liberated. In next episode, we will discuss what drove the Austrians to attack in the summer of 1918, and then the results of that attack, before discussing the Italian attack that followed. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next week as we continue our story of the Italian front in 1918.